Laura Live speaking up nicely. Yeah. The children are going to leave, I think, with Katina and maybe Sheila and Candy in their time of message and time of activities. We will, that remaining here, return to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, to be more specific. Last Sunday, you may recall that we ventured into the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, and we began to discuss his opposition. The opposition, you may remember, came from those who opposed him, namely by two characters that we identified. You may have heard him for the very first time last week, which was Sam Ballot, who is the governor of Samaria, and another gentleman by the name of Tobiah, who is the governor, if we call him that, of the Transjordan area, or the area simply east of the Jordan River. However, as we identified those two characters to be greatly in opposition to the rebuilding and restoration that Nehemiah was conducting with some of his people for the walls of Jerusalem, we also ended at towards verse 8 and 7 and 8 of the fourth chapter to note that more opposition was mounting against the structures to be rebuilt. Listen again to verse 7 and 8 where we ended last week. It says, But when Sanballat, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls at Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So notice here then where we stopped last week with the opposition presenting itself to Nehemiah, it is not any longer just Sambalat and Tobiah. Now we see an effort of joining forces. We see the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites all coming together, getting very angry at the restoration of the wall. Now, I pause there for a minute because if you're like me, I can realize that and begin to see and understand the scripture telling us about the opposition presenting itself in Nehemiah's effort to rebuild. And, you know, he's got some of his people with him. He's not doing it by himself, obviously. But in my mind, I begin to ask questions towards the text, and I begin to process things. And one of the questions that seems to surface is, why are all these people getting so angry? What is the big deal? I mean, why are they getting bent out of shape about him going back and rebuilding and restoring the city and the walls around Jerusalem. That's what I begin to wonder. And maybe you're beginning to wonder as we notice that opposition has made itself known to Nehemiah. So today, we will venture again into the fourth chapter. We will note more opposition, but then we'll begin to answer the question of why the people seem to be so angry and so bent up on trying to stop the effort of rebuilding the wall. So our intention here this morning is to begin to witness how Nehemiah responds to the increased pressure from the opposition that presents itself in his life. We have seen through last week that Nehemiah responded through prayer, and he left it to God. So today we're going to look at the remaining portion of the fourth chapter. It's a longer reading, verses 9 through 23, and we're going to see how he now responds to this last threat and the opposition that presents itself in his life and for rebuilding and restoration. So stand with me this morning 
as we do to honor the reading of the word. And again, we're going to start where we left off last week. We read through verse 7 and 8. We have now reread that and seen that the people are plotting together. So now we're going to start in verse 9, and we instantly see Nehemiah's reaction in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters your wives, and your homes. Verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were rebuilding on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall from one to another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people of that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by the night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. We kept his weapon at his right hand. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word here this morning, Lord, as we continue our messages pertaining to Nehemiah and how we can learn from what we see with his example of how we can apply it to our lives. So again, here today, Lord, we invite your spirit to lead and to reign and to govern our time together, and equip us, Lord, then to understand how we will have opposition, like Nehemiah has opposition, and what we can learn from him and apply to our lives as we face those who may oppose us for the faith that we have in you. So again, Lord, we invite you to lead and direct this day. We pray these, Lord, these words today will be your words rather than mine. Thank you, Lord, for what's going to happen here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
But indeed, it's a longer reading than last week and finishes the chapter for us. But I'm going to borrow the words of Matthew Henry as we start this morning to kind of place things in perspective of what we read and see happening into the rest of the fourth chapter. Matthew Henry states this. He says, we have here the conspiracy which the Jews' enemies formed against them to stay or to stop the building by slaying the builders. The conspirators were not only Sambalat and Tobiah, but other neighboring people whom they had drawn into the plot. They flattered themselves with a fancy that the work would soon stand still of itself. But when they heard that it went on and prospered, they were angry at the Jewish people for being so hasty to push their work forward and then likewise angry at themselves for being so slow in opposing it. And now those words written by Matthew Henry many years ago, but it still accurately describes the assessment of the situation that's given to us in the text that we read in the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. So essentially, the opposition is teaming together. We can begin to see that as we look into the reading from one verse into the other. And also then, as we see how they're teaming together, notice that they're becoming angrier. It seems, as you read into the text, that they get angry with each stone placed upon a top of another. Maybe they're fuming now with hatred and anger. And we get the sense when you read through this that the opposition teaming together, getting angry, wants all the effort of the wall to stop. And they want it to stop now. So picture, if you will, it's like a posse just being formed to get the building and erecting of the wall to stop in any way, shape, and form immediately to stop. So let us observe that and what is happening with Nehemiah and the opposition by asking again the question, what is the real beef here with these people? I mean, why are they so intent on trying to get this rebuilding of a wall around the city to stop? What quarrel had all the mounting opposition have with the Jewish people? I mean, I ask myself, have the Jewish people done something some way to offend them or done something wrong or hurt the opposition, the enemy, in some way? And the answer really is no. They've done nothing really to offend or necessarily hurt the people who are opposing them. I mean, for the most part, the Jewish people have not been people of violence. Now, they're preparing themselves as we see in the text, but they're typically not trying to instigate a particular war. One commentary actually stated very simply this way, that the Israelites, the Jewish people, live peaceably by their neighbor. So again, the question remains, why? Why such strong opposition that we see in the fourth chapter? Why are all these people, people groups, now teaming together to fight and stop building of the walls? As a question we must address and we must answer. So let us do so for just a few minutes, because there's three possibilities that maybe are contributing to the effort of opposing and stopping the rebuilding of the wall. And the first one is this, that the people, the opposition, the enemy, were not welcomed 
to help rebuild Jerusalem or the walls. And to understand this, we have to go back all the way to Ezra. And, and, and with Ezra in chapters 1 and 2, we learn about a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. We don't see him mentioned here in Nehemiah. But in our time of understanding Nehemiah and what we've learned about him so far, and with the Jewish people once upon a time going into exile or captivity for the rebellion, we know that they were soon released years after. One of the very first people to go back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the city was Zerubbabel. And then as Zerubbabel went back, he had the Samaritans, the so-called enemy, the surrounding and actually controlling Jerusalem, to go to him and ask him if they could help rebuild. Well, if you know much about Jewish people, Israelites and Samaritans, you know they despise each other. They are not friendly to one another. So Zerubbabel, when he heard the request come from the Samaritans, hey, we want to help you rebuild. Can we help you? He refused. He said, no, I don't need your stinking help. So that then made what were not friendly terms even more not friendly. So one particular way in which they might be angry and opposing is perhaps the way they were not welcome to participate in the rebuilding effort. But that's just one possibility of three. The other is the fact that, well, here's Nehemiah. I mean, Zerubbabel came back. Now Nehemiah's coming, and he's the third party to come. So now we understand that he is just not any ordinary exile released from captivity to come back to Jerusalem. Do you remember Nehemiah's position he has to serve the king? King Artaxerxes is who he serves. Do you remember what he position his capacity is with the king? He is the cupbearer. We mentioned that weeks ago. Do we also recognize how the cupbearer is a quite prestigious position? The cupbearer is a highly trusted advisor to the king. So with Nehemiah now coming back to rebuild and begin the effort in Jerusalem, with the king's approval and all the material given to him to rebuild, it appears all the more certain that this is going to happen. So understand then that if they now see Nehemiah coming back with the king's approval and the materials are thinking, oh man, this really is going to happen. And that maybe upsets them because again, with the Israelites going into captivity, into exile, the only people remaining in Jerusalem and the area surrounding was going to be the Samaritans. When the Babylonians came in and captured them and took people to the, in captivity, they took the best that they considered of the Israelites. The Samaritans, they wanted nothing to do with, so they left them back there. So now with the Jewish people gone, the Samaritans have control and charge of everything. So now they see, yeah, here comes Nehemiah. Oh, yeah, the king likes him. He's in a good position with the king. Man, he's got those materials too. So they say, yeah, this is going to happen, which means then Nehemiah is not an ordinary person. We're going to have to concede back to these despised Jewish people once again, which leads then into the third possibility, which goes along really with somewhat the second, that this is indeed the third party now to return to Jerusalem. 
which meant then that there's an increasing number of people going to the neighborhood, going to Jerusalem. Again, this meant the likelihood of Samaritans losing their dominance and control of Jerusalem was now foreseeable. Maybe had that pie-in-the-sky vision for a while was going to be theirs, but now they see these people returning, and they think, man, we're going to lose everything that we gained while they're gone. So in sum, any of those three possibilities or a combination thereof could be leading to the anger and hostility that we can see is within the text as we read through the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. So within all the people are rallying together to deter the rebuilding efforts for whatever selfish reason they may have. In fact, look again at verse 8 because it says, not only are they rallying together, now they're plotting together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And even verse 11 adds, they will not know or see till we come again among them and kill them. They want to now have death upon the people who are going about rebuilding the effort of the walls in Jerusalem. So it's like it's went a step further than having anger and hatred towards the effort, for whatever reason, and now even presenting murder and death. So perhaps there's an underlying thing that maybe the commentaries, as we talk about the way in which they may be opposing the effort and those three possibilities, maybe there's under one underlying factor that really is presenting itself to why they're so fueled to stop the effort. Why and what fueled their anger? And I present to you that the reason they're really wanting to stop everything that's happening is pure selfish envy and jealousy and just malice. Now, quite remarkably, it was all particularly out of selfish motives of envy and malice. I mean, they hated the Jews and their piety and were therefore angry and annoyed and troubled with their prosperity. And they sought then to ruin the effort. Now, I'm not exactly what you may call a history buff by any stretch of the imagination. But I have over the years been drawn to certain segments of history. It started years ago when I was in middle school, I had a seventh grade history teacher that just intrigued me to have some understanding of wanting to pursue some basic knowledge of history. But as, as all that happened, I never really got into understanding things specifically to World War II and of the Hitler's hatred he had for the Jewish people. But in preparing for last week, I thought I'm going to dig a little deeper and see what I can find about why Hitler hated the Jewish people so much. And I learned that there may not have been just one single trigger of why Hitler despised the hated and hated the Jewish people, but a combination of things. And here's what I learned. There may have been a combination of these three things. The first is the anti-Jewish climate that he was exposed to in Vienna. A second possibility, maybe a combination, was Germany's defeat in World War I. And thirdly, a possibility was his belief that some races were superior to others. 
And there's a lot of expansion as you look into understanding this whole situation in which you could read for hours. But suffice it to say this, that Hitler looked upon the Jewish people with great hatred. He despised them greatly. Maybe as much as we want to be beginning to think about how the Samaritans and the Jews were hated enemies to each other, maybe Hitler was so much more that he despised the Jewish people and he saw them as a lower race or a group of people and thought then that the world could be better without them. That was his philosophy. That was his thinking in a nutshell. So I began to think about that. And I began to think that Hitler then believed that the world, listen, he thought the world would be better without God's chosen people. So I began to process that and apply it. And I thought, I wonder if people, the world today, society at large, think that Christianity or that Christians like you and I would be better to not even be here. I mean, have you ever began to contemplate as we think about how the hatred, the opposition can present itself into our lives similarly in some way, maybe with Nehemiah, have you ever contemplated or wondered why Christianity is so greatly disliked in the world today? I began to ponder that thought, and I come across an article written by David Murray. It's called, Why Are Christians Hated So Much? And his diagnosis is interesting. He says in his article, he first recognizes how many politicians, judges, journalists, producers, educators, are sympathetic to and tolerant of every kind of false religion and every kind of perversity, except when it comes to Christian teaching and values. Isn't it interesting? They accept everything and every perverse thought and action except when it comes to Christian teaching and values. He goes further then to refer to the scholar R.C. Sproul, who writes a book called The Holiness of God, in which Sproul notes the truth that the Pharisees immensely hated and despise Jesus. Why did they hate Jesus so much? And the answer is that the Pharisees were all about themselves. They were the so-called experts of the wall with their ego and their pride. But Sproul makes a great point that when Jesus came, he says, these men renowned for their so-called holiness had the authentic display and true holiness standing right in front of them displaying them for all the people to see their counterfeit religion. So in Sproul's words, with the appearance of Jesus standing right in front of them among the people, there, the Pharisees, righteousness took on a luster of unrighteousness. Now I said all that to say this. So it is similar for you and me. As Christians, we are known as Christ's ambassadors. We reflect his image to the world. Paul made that undisputably clear. In his second letter to Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he simply says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, the Greek word there used for ambassadors means this, to act as a representative. 
which means that every one of us who believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, we're a born-again believer, we act as the representative of Jesus Christ to this world. Every one of us who are believers or Christians, we are an ambassador and we act as a representative to this world on behalf of our Lord. We call ourselves Christians, which means we are Christ-like. We as Christians stand for everything that Jesus stood for. And we should reflect the light of his glory. It's like the world then hates Christians because then we reflect the glory and the light of Christ. To borrow the words of Murray is this. As Christians, we reflect the holiness of Christ. And we will experience hostility through that effort of light. But we can overcome through Christ. That's our first point. Our first point is the fact that we, as Christians, we're going to have hostility. We're going to have hatred. Why? Because we are ambassadors and reflect the glory of Christ in what we do. We should, everything we do, give honor and glory to Christ and make him known in our very lives that we live. But that really shouldn't surprise us to know that we're going to have some anger, hostility toward us in our life. Because Jesus told the disciples, and us for that matter, it's written in the Gospel of John in chapter 15. He said, the world hates you. No, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were the world, the world would love you of its own. But because you're now the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. So it would not should maybe surprise us that we're going to have some opposition, some anger and hostility towards us in our faith and our beliefs. But as we begin to realize that is real to us and see that, yes, we should maybe expect it, we return then to Nehemiah and his reaction to his opposition so we can begin to see what we must do. And note again that forces are mounting, people are teaming together. Let me just summarize what's happening again for Nehemiah. Remember, Sanballat has made his opposition known to him. He's with the Samaritans. They're going to come from the north towards the city. We also have Tobiah with Sanballat, who is going to bring the Ammonites. They're going to come from the east. We also have Geshem. We haven't talked about him lately, but we discovered him also opposing the Jewish rebuilding effort, back in chapter 2, verse 19, he is going to come with the Arabs, and they're going to come from the south. And then we got the men from Ashdod, the Ashdodites, who are going to come from the west. So notice then, it's an all-out effort in every direction and every possibility, from north, south, east, and west, converging upon a city and rebuilding. It's an all-out attack from every side and every angle. So what is Nehemiah going to do? What is the reaction he's going to have recognizing that the opposition is getting stronger and stronger? It's mounting. There's more people coming from every direction. What was Nehemiah's reaction? We find again that he prayed. He prayed once again in verse 9 where we started. And we prayed to our God. I mean, don't you just love this guy? I mean, Nehemiah constantly goes to God in prayer. He's a great model for us to see when we have people in our lives who will oppose us 
or we have anything in life to go in a direction that we do not expect, it's time for us to pray like it was for Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah has proven himself time and time again to be a man of prayer. I mean, we found in chapter 1, in verses 5 through 11, when he learned about what happened to the beloved city, he immediately mourned and wept and cried, but he prayed. In verses 5 through 11, in chapter 1, he began to pray when he learned about the city. But that isn't the only time the man has prayed. When we got into chapter 2 and verse 4, we found he prayed again as he stood before the king. In chapter 4, once we arrived here, last week in verses 4 and 5, he prayed once more. And now we go back to chapter 4, starting in verse 9, and we see the man is in prayer once more. He constantly decides that when he has something in which he feels not certain or has opposition to mount, he goes to God in prayer. Now notice something about Nehemiah. He's not just called Nehemiah because he's just some average Joe. Nehemiah, again, is the cupbearer, a very prestigious position. So notice then that he goes back as a leader. He's leading this whole effort. And now we have a leader. We have a leader who goes to God in prayer. For everything he is about to do, the leader of the people goes to God in prayer. Now think about that. How awesome would it be if our leaders followed Nehemiah's example for everything that they were about to do, they first went to God in prayer. Wouldn't Washington, D.C. look much different? We need to be praying for our leaders, for conviction to be upon them, but also for them to turn to God, to seek his wisdom. In Washington, D.C., we all need God. But I think Washington, D.C. really needs some Jesus, don't you? So it's right that we should be praying for our leaders and for them to have conviction to pray as they lead our great nation and people. I mean, imagine how much things would be different today if that was occurring. But notice in verse 9, we go back to that, that Nehemiah is, yes, he's praying. We see that's his immediate reaction, once again, to opposition. But notice he takes some action, too. Verse 9, we finish. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This reminds me of how we must trust God, but also we must prepare, which leads to our second point, that trusting God, is not a passive response. I mean, yes, we should go to God in prayer for all things, all of us, our nation, our leaders, yes, but also begin to take some necessary action and preparation. For example, say a student, Levi, Isaac, anybody else in the room, Jackson over there, they're all going to fix to have a math exam. Micah back there too. I see you, Micah. They're fixing to have their math exam in school. But they begin to think, well, I mean, I heard the preacher. I can go pray to pass the math exam. Well, prayer is what they should be doing, perhaps, but prayer is not enough. Enough. They should also begin to study to pass the exam. 
Just don't lead itself up on prayer. Another example. Suppose all of a sudden that Chris says, I want this new promotion at work. And he says, I don't need to work hard. I just need to pray about it. Well, a promotion comes maybe through some prayer, but also some hard work. Requires a little bit of action with it. Or even better, how long has it been since we've had some rain? Anybody know? Well, it rained a little bit last night, but not any great amount. So if we wanted a lot of rain, if we had gone like we did in the summer of Texas one year for three months without rain, all the dry, brown, ugly grass was there. Potential for fire was great. It hadn't rained for three months. We actually began to hold prayer meetings for rain. But you know, when you begin to pray for rain, you better be prepared because God will send the rain. But who at the prayer meeting carried an umbrella with them? You've got to have faith and trust in God, but you also have to have some action. We must pray and trust, but often also have some action. And Nehemiah here, here then shows us how we need to have some teeth behind our prayers. So Nehemiah prays and begins to trust God will protect and ultimately at the same time make some preparations. We find in the text he prepares, he wisely and strategically places a guard to watch. That's brilliant. And then while that is what we find Nehemiah to doing as immediately response by the threat, prayer, and then posting a guard, we should notice something else about what he does. Look with me in verse 14. While Nehemiah has now trusted God and prayed and implemented strategy, he begins to notice the fear among his people and encompassed them. Verse 14, he said, I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your home. Notice in verses 13 through 15 that Nehemiah established a new strategy to meet the threat of the enemy and the infiltration they were having towards the city and the wall. I mean, he positioned some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall with swords, spears, and bows. And I'm sure because we know he is a man of prayer, he'd been praying about that for quite some time and thought God directed him to do this particular action. And the strategy then is shared with everyone. And as we hear the strategy, strategy shared with everyone, we begin to notice a little fear invoked among the people. So Nehemiah gathered them all together and charged them to face the situation courageously. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the great and awesome Lord who is and was and continues to be on our side and fight to save your family. But then notice what happens as he gathers them together and tells them, remember the Lord. Notice in verse 15, he says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall and each did his work. Which means when the enemy heard that their plot had been discovered, they did not attack the people. And the people then resumed their work. Now bring that to your attention because I want to ask you this. Who do we see intervening here? And all the things happening with Nehemiah, his prayer, 
posting people to guard, even having people with weaponry available if necessary, who do we now see intervening in all this behind the scenes? God. God hears Nehemiah's prayer. God is there, ready to help. I mean, I hope you get the picture here that Nehemiah, he prayed, he acted, he prepared, and God answered his prayer. God heard his prayer and answered him, took care of every need he had. I mean, Nehemiah is such a wonderful example, an illustration of a man of prayer, but now also trusting God completely. And now we see here God helps, he intervenes, and we ask ourselves, is that what we do? Do we trust God that much that when we begin to pray, we think, yeah, God can act accordingly to his will? And then I will accept that for whatever it may be? Or do we begin to fight against God? Thinking, God, no, 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 that's not how I wanted it. You didn't hear me correctly. Let me pray this once more, God, because you didn't hear it. Somehow, some way, it's not like I expected it to be. Nehemiah just accepts it. I mean, he prays, he lives in the hand of God, he takes his answer with preparation. I mean, through all of what we find of Nehemiah so far, He's a wonderful leader. I mean, he's caring for his people and encouraged them along the way and will completely accept whatever God's will. And along the way, as a leader, he reminds the people of God's strength and power. We all need this type of leadership. We all need to be this type of leader into our workplace, our families, wherever we may be. The world needs these types of leaders like Nehemiah. But let us leap down into verses 19 and 20 prepared to end for this morning because we find that this task overall as a leader, as we have discovered in life, is not an easy one at all. Verse 19, he said, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Now remember, not only are the workers now being threatened, they have the task of also rebuilding the wall. So it's a wearisome effort. I mean, they're diligently working night and day trying to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah is leading them in the effort. He's encouraging them. And as they go on, they're going as fast as they possibly can go, I'm sure. But that begins to take a toll on the body. And so Nehemiah then hears some of the complaints. He hears some of the concerns. And he tells them, ultimately, don't worry about all this. Yes, this task is large. We recognize building a wall is not easy. He's been saying, don't worry. Through all the building and restoration, through all the threats that we're now hearing, God will protect us. He will fight for us. You remember back in chapter 2, we heard it not once but twice. We heard it in chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 18. 
that Nehemiah had recognized that the hand of God was upon him. He still feels it. The hand of God is upon him. And so as he, heal, as he continues to feel the hand of the Lord upon him, he continues to lead the people, reminding them, encouraging them, God is with you, he will fight for you. What is the point I'm trying to make here? The point is this, that Nehemiah fully trusts God in everything that he's going through and everything that he's doing. And he conveys to the people that they too can trust God. He completely trusts God. The application then is simple is that we too need to trust God in everything that we're going through. Everything is happening to us in our life. I mean, honestly, we don't always know why things happen the way they do. Yeah, it's not the way we prayed and hoped it would happen. We don't always understand what God is up to. But he is God, and we are not. And he has a purpose and plan for each and everything. It requires then that we must trust him. We must obey him and completely trust him and know that in his time, in his way, it will all work out and be ultimately to his glory. What I'm saying simply is this, our third and final point, that trusting God is not always easy, but it is always the right action of a believer. It is what's necessary for every one of us who are Christians and believers to trust, to trust and obey. We should simply trust and obey. Now, you're here this morning and you're hearing this message. And maybe right now you're facing some sort of opposition, or maybe right now there's something else happening to your life. I never believe it's an accident in any way that God places something on our heart and has it come together to hear a particular message. So maybe somehow, some way, you've had some fear of some things happening throughout 2020. I mean, here we are now, almost to the midpoint of September. Before we turn around, this year will be over. It's been a horrendous year for people. We've had people who have suffered illnesses. We have people who are greatly still fearing COVID. We have people who are having financial difficulties. Family tensions are in our world. It may be among us this morning. I don't know exactly everything that's happened in all of our lives, but I know it's been difficult throughout this year. Why is all this happening? We don't ultimately know, but I know that we have to trust God. We have to trust him. And we've been led to look at Nehemiah. And how Nehemiah, as we begin to understand it, looking into the text, he's against what really for him is unsurmountable odds. Rebuilding a wall around a city, and on top of that, facing intense opposition, threats of death. I mean, the opposition is mounting and plotting against him. So we look upon Nehemiah and we ask, well, what, what, what does he do? What, what does he do in the midst of all these things? I mean, we think 2020 has been bad. And yes, it has. Nehemiah had 2020 years ago. So what does he do? He prays over the whole situation. And he gives it to God. And then he just trusts God. 
I mean, ultimately, you may already see the slide behind me. It just sounds so easy. Yeah, we look at Nehemiah, we see him praying and trusting. It just sounds so easy for him to do that. And it can really be that easy. It would just simply live according to our faith. We must be true to God. We must maintain our faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. There's countless men and women listed in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, if you go back and read Hebrews 11 later, you're going to see many names mentioned there. And it says even those at the end, there's many more which could be listed. That's a paraphrase of chapter 11 in Hebrews. But it lists people like Noah, who trusted God whenever he was building the ark and there had never been rain before. And there's people like Moses who his mother placed him in a river and just left it to God to be able to be, use Moses. I mean, they, they completely trusted. And then there's Abraham, who God had told him to take to the mountain and sacrifice his one only son, Isaac. And he trusted God. So all the people we find in Hebrews chapter 11 has had a situation. They've had a 2020. And they ultimately trusted God. And God provided for each and every person. What that reveals to us is just like we're finding in Nehemiah. That we too, although we have some difficulty to whatever may happen so far this year, with the year not quite over with yet, we too can trust God. We should trust God. Give any concern you have today, anything troubling you, any opposition you're facing, any fear you're having, today, hand it to God. Say, God, this is bigger than me. It's now yours. And I'll trust you, wherever happened. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today as it leads us into something that we truly need to recognize. That faith requires trust it's not always easy there's always the right action for each and every one of us so today lord we want to take a moment to reflect upon our own personal situation and we're going to hand that to you we're going to hand that over to you today lord we're going to trust you i recognize that even as i hand stuff to you lord how i can be relieved. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I hand it to you and I can trust that you'll bring something awesome from it for your glory. No, we don't always understand why it happens and why we may be going through it. But Nehemiah's life and the examples of what we see so far is leading us understanding that we too can trust you. So today, Lord, I pray for all my church family that we would give to you Whatever's troubling us, I'm going to trust you. Thank you, Lord, for introducing Nehemiah to us and how we can begin to trust you and how we should. Thank you, as always, for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.